With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. HN Podcast with Miller and Dace. Sorry for uh, last week. That is my fault entirely for missing last week. Is uh, Once again, the Miller family is on the move. Um, and if you listen to any of our podcasts from about a year ago exactly this time, you might remember the uh, the snake episode. And the snake episode basically served as a countdown to when we were going to be leaving that house as Mrs. Miller cannot abide snakes in the abode. Now, that was the only snake that ever did make it into the abode, but the thought of said snake was on my wife's mind every time she went in that room with the lights off, so... Dude, we had to move. That's just how it is. But now, I come to you 300 megabits per second download speed, and it feels so good. So, I'm revived. I'm ready to roll. You ready? I'm ready, man. All right. You bet. Good deal. Well, yeah, you have been ready. You've been doing some work. The Steve Dace College Football Preview is coming together, and you sent me a few things uh, the last couple of days, and we're going to dive into those. The first thing is... Your Power 5 coaching power ratings. That's what we'll dive into today. Tell the folks out there what we're looking at here. Well, um, I thought with this being Memorial Day weekend, and I want to apologize in advance for my voice, I had a terrible sinus infection this week, and I even lost my voice for a day, mm. <clears throat> So, which is in my line of work. Um, not good, obviously. So... Pardon me. It's just now getting to the point that it's somewhat functional. So I want to apologize for that in advance. But I thought with this being Memorial Day, uh, you know, my college football preview, I typically bring it out around Fourth of July weekend, all-star break, uh, that time of year. So I thought, you know, I'm already starting to work on sort of the framework for the actual preview. And I thought this Memorial Day weekend it'd be cool between this and Bigger Ten if if we kind of gave the audience a sneak peek of what's coming later in the summer and provided sort of the initial frameworks that I use before I sit down and start predicting what I think is going to happen in the upcoming season. And so this week for Miller and Dace, we're going to take a look at, and I started doing this uh, three years ago, but it's the ranking of all the power five coaches, including Notre Dame and how I use this metric, because for people that are new to our podcast, the preview I put out every year is actually a forecast. It's how I think the season will play out by the time it's all said and done. So when you read my preseason top 25, for example, it'll say, Hey, this is how I think the teams will finish ranked. You know, the, first weekend in December when the college football playoff committee puts forth the final rankings. Well, when, when, when I'm evaluating this, there's two things I look at. One is, you know, your overall talent, depth, personnel. And we get into that. We'll get into that in the bigger 10 podcast, but then you run into a lot of teams and you'll see when we get to the bigger 10 podcast, there's a lot of teams whose personnel is pretty similar in college football. And so then you got to look at, uh, coaching becomes a huge factor in sort of uh, breaking ties. You know, who's got a record of development, success, the trajectory of their careers, etc. And so last year or, or three years ago, I started ranking the coaches uh, and, and just, you know, I gave coach like a bonus point if they were kind of uh, traditionally a clutch coach, etc. This year, I decided to flesh it out a little bit more. And so I've got five criteria that I use to rank the power five coaches. All right. The first criteria is your overall power five head coaching resume. Strictly what you've done as a head coach in the power five. And I I gave every one of the 65 coaches in, in the power five, a grade of one through 10 on that. And then I looked at your non power five head coaching resume, meaning what you've done as either a group of five head coach 
a power five top assistant coach, NFL head or assistant coach, etc. But I only rank gave that a one through five, so it wouldn't be weighted as much as your actual head coaching resume in the power five. Then I looked at your current coaching trajectory, whether your needle is pointed up for the next four years, which is a full recruiting cycle, or it's pointed down at this stage of your coaching career. And, and I, I rated that as a one to 10 because you'll have some guys like a Bill Snyder whose overall resume is tremendous, but it's clear they're on their last legs. And, you know, if, if you're an Iowa fan, you have experience for even for a Hall of Fame coach. When it goes, it goes quick. So you you kind of just bottom out. Uh, or you don't always do that, but you can do that, as we saw in Hayden's last year at Iowa. And then I have a big game bonus. Uh, if you're a coach known for producing in big games as a head coach at the Power 5 level, you're given a bonus anywhere of one to three points. And then there's the Hall of Fame bonus, meaning with the resume you have right now, are you destined for the College Football Hall of Fame? And if the answer is yes, based on your resume right now, then you were given an additional three bonus points. And then what I did when there were ties is the tie went to whoever had the highest coaching trajectory score, meaning their needle was pointed was pointed up the furthest. I think that's and fair. That, and then if it was still a tie after that, then I decided who won who won the tie. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And you know, my only quibble without looking at any of the scores yet is that your your waiting power five head coaching overall resume on a ten point scale. And you're also weighting current coaching trajectory on a 10-point scale. And I'm not, I mean, again, I don't know how this is going to bear out in the numbers. Part of me thinks that, um, you know, there should be some value in there for people that have a better, uh, a more longevity at the Power 5 level. But you also brought up Bill Snyder. And, you know, he's certainly an example that if we sat here and say, is a current AD going to hire you know, some dude who's really hitting it hard right now, his trajectory's hot, but he's only been at a Power 5 gig for four years, or is he going to hire Bill Snyder? I think we both know the answer to that. I mean, especially Bill. Right. Bill's really, really long in the tooth. So. He's almost, he's pushing 80. Yeah, so 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 change it to a Mark D'Antonio, who's 63 or 64. Um, so I, I don't know. but I, So we'll see how this bears out. It may not even come to bear. But I, I really like the weighting otherwise, and I really like these categories. So I'm curious to see how this is going to turn up. So let's begin at number one. Uh, Nick Saban is at number one, and I, I really don't know how anybody could potentially argue this. 31 points is the highest possible level. And the only – Nick Saban maxes out in four of your five categories. And the only one that he doesn't max out in is his non-Power 5 head coaching resume. He was an NFL assistant, but I don't, other than that, was he ever, you know, he was, an, was he an assistant at Michigan State? I don't recall. Uh, yeah, he was an assistant at Michigan State a long time ago, head coach at Toledo, Bill Belichick assistant, head coach in the Miami Dolphins. And you know what's funny is, um, outside of his head coaching gigs at Michigan State, LSU, and, and, and now Alabama, which, you know, that record is arguably the greatest resume of all time. You contrast that with Urban Meyer. Mm-hmm. And, and Urban Meyer was a lot better at Bowling Green than Nick Saban was at Toledo. Urban Meyer went undefeated at Utah. Urban Meyer's non-Power 5 coaching resume is easily more impressive than than Nick Saban's and and so when you look at their two overall scores they actually ended up with the exact same overall score um, but Saban because I have him rated higher on his current coaching trajectory and the main reason I have him ranked higher is or there's two reasons one I, I think he's going to coach longer than Urban Meyer and two the competition in his division isn't anything close to what Ohio State has played I, I mean you know, Ohio State is recruiting at Alabama's level. We'll get into that in the next podcast. But the drop, the, you can make an argument. The fourth, if depending on who you think it is, Michigan State, Michigan, or Penn State, the fourth best team in the Big Ten East is better 
easily better than the second place team in the SEC West. You can make that argument. And and so um, I, I think his trajectory is higher uh, than Myers, and that's the tiebreaker for Nick Saban at number one. You know, that, I, I appreciate you explaining that because I was sitting here looking at these and I'm wondering, okay, d- did Dace originally have Urban Meyer with more points than Saban and he reverse engineered it on the co- current coaching trajectory? But I think your your argument makes sense. And I don't have a problem with, the, with both of those guys at 29. And I think your point about Meyer's um, resume, uh, Meyer, if you will, I mean, is it safe to say that he kind of took more of a dirt road path? Uh, I mean, when you're going from Bowling Green and you dominated, and you go to Utah and you dominated, then you go to then you go to Florida, won multiple national championships, and then you're to Ohio State, where he's won one. So it, you can't go wrong with either one of those. The question to you: one game, one game, you got two weeks to prepare. Who, who's the coach of your team? You taking Saban or are you taking Meyer? I don't want. I'm not trying to cop out. I need more information. Yeah, I understand. What's the that. circumstance of the game? Give me it's the circumstance. It's a national championship. All right, then I'm taking Nick Saban. Would you have said that after? Would you have said that prior to what you saw in the last national championship game? Um, that's a good question, and and I don't know the answer. I'm sure I still would have taken Saban. I might have thought about it longer. Um, you know, if the situation is um, an underdog, I'm taking Urban Meyer. I mean, his record as an underdog is, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast for years. It's insane. Now, that didn't help him against Clemson in the playoff two years ago. But um, if it's one game and two weeks, I'm going to take Nick Saban. But um, I, I, would, I really would not begrudge anybody who would take Urban Meyer. Where I I think Nick Saban, I think Nick Saban is a good game day coach. I think Urban Meyer is a great game day coach. What I think Nick Saban is better at than anybody has been in the history of our sport is the building of a program, the building of a machine, the turnover he has in his coaching staff now nearly every year. Um, It's crazy. You think about it, Jalen Hurts is going into his junior true junior year. And he and he's a former SEC offensive player of the year. He won't even be the starting quarterback this year if Tua Tagovailoa is healthy. And if if you look at his career, he's on his now fourth offensive coordinator. Or third offensive coordinator. Right? No, fourth. They started with Lane Kiffin, then they went to Steve Sarkeesian. And they brought in the guy from the Patriots, Brian something or other, who's back in the NFL. And then they have a new guy this year. Start Think about the fact Jalen Hurts is going into his true junior year. He's on his fourth offensive coordinator. Mm. They've had this kind of turnover on the defensive coaching staff, from Kirby Smart to Jeremy Pruitt, etc. He has, he has built a program unlike anything we have seen. And maybe in the sport of football, period. Because as great of a coach as Bill Belichick is, and he's a great coach, there's no denying that. One of the great things that helped Bill Belichick is he got lucky on the he got he got the luckiest 199th pick in the draft of all time. Well, Steve, it wasn't luck. He drafted him. He passed on Tom Brady five other times. Okay, he drafted him with the 199th pick in the sixth round, and the reason that became key is in a salary cap era. They got a bargain basement all-pro quarterback for five years. And then by the time it came time to pay him, the dude married the number one supermodel on planet Earth. And so he's never been the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. But when you know you've got that guy for 10 to 15 years, that gives you a huge margin for error in the rest of your roster. Rosters in college football turn over a lot more than that. And yet, with all the player turnover, all the guys that leave early every year for Alabama... I mean, when we get at the roster strength podcast for big, for Bigger Ten, their 2015 recruiting class has just been gutted at Alabama, absolutely gutted by the NFL draft. And yet they don't skip a beat. Coaches leave. They don't skip a beat. You could argue he's built the single greatest football operation 
on any level in the history of this sport. And I think that's that's why he has more championships than Urban Meyer. But if someone wants to tell me Urban Meyer is a better game day coach, they'll get no argument out of me. So we have Saban and Meyer top at 29. Next, with 26 points, is Dabo Swinney. Um, where Meyer and Saban had a perfect 10 on their Power 5 head coaching resume. Swinney's got 8 just because of time. Also uh, a 2 on the non-Power 5 resume. A 10 on the current coaching trajectory. And then 3 on a big game bonus and 3 on a Hall of Fame. He is, if you're an AD right now and you take everything into account, age included, even though you can't publicly say it or you get sued, are you taking Swinney over Saban and Meyer? I think it depends on what part of the country. Dan, I know it's somewhat of a sensitive subject, so I'll be very generic. But I, I just think, given where we are culturally, there are certain places in this country yeah. aren't going to tolerate Dabo's overt religiosity. They're right. just not. Right. Okay, they're just not. I mean, look, I mean, could you imagine Dabo Sweeney coaching at the University of Iowa? Uh, no, no, I can't imagine him coaching at many of the public Wisconsin, school, I mean, public schools, the liberal arts public schools in the Big Ten. You know, I, I couldn't imagine him. You know, USC is a private school, so it kind of doesn't matter. But like at UCLA, boy, I, the People's Republic of California, I couldn't see that. You know, and and it works both ways. I, I, what was the there was a job in the SEC a few years ago that wanted to hire Chris Peterson at Boise State. But I, but there were rumors he's a Scientologist or something, and mm-hmm. they weren't gonna they weren't gonna bring him down to the Bible Belt. So you know, we're a very balkanized culture right now, and in some places these things matter than they do at others. And so I think, let me put it this way: if if I'm if I'm somewhere, say Missouri or south of that, and I'm an AD, yes, he's number one on my list. And when you look at what he's done. And we'll get, and this will show up as well when we get to the to the Bigger Ten podcast. There's this notion that he's out there getting all these five star recruits, and he's not actually. When you look at their recruiting rankings, I think he's had and before this past class. I think he'd had have one consensus top ten class. He's done a hell of a job at player development. They do a hell of a job at player retention. Their guys stay out of trouble off the field. Um, and, you know, there was nothing in this guy's background to indicate he could pull this off. He essentially got this job by default. I mean, Clemson had been through probations. They had become a verb. They were a second tier, uh, going on the verge of being a second tier program in the ACC. There was nothing in this guy's background whatsoever that indicated he was capable of building what he has built there. Now we go to four through ten. And we're talking about three points separating number four to number 10. In order of points, Chris Peterson, Washington, 23. Chip Kelly, UCLA, 22. Mark D'Antonio, Michigan State, 22. Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M, 22. Gary Patterson, TCU, 21. Mark Rick of Miami, 20. And Bill Snyder at Kansas State at number 20. That is quite... You number 10. You I'm sorry, number, yeah, 10. number 10. That's quite a bunch there. Now... You had some initial skepticism on one aspect of my criteria, which is fair. And I think any criteria would have skepticism to it. So the number one test of this criteria is who it spits out at the top. Now that you've seen who the top 10 coaches are, what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, Jimbo's got a title. I have no problem with his inclusion there. And he's had a heck of a run. Um, we'll see what he does. And you, you brought up a point either a week ago or two weeks ago on this podcast, or maybe it was you and me on a phone call. Uh, maybe it was Lieutenant Dan who told me. I can't remember. But you talked about how um, Jimbo Fisher, how he's done without uh, the quarterback that he won the national championship with a couple of years ago. And it hasn't been that James good. James Winston. Yeah. Yeah. Hasn't been that good. Yeah, he's been about a 600 coach without James Winston. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's not bad. I mean, you have to be at least a 600 coach to be considered for Hall of Fame inclusion, but it's nowhere near what he was with him. Uh, Mark D'Antonio right now with what his program's done, I have no problem with him being the top 10. Chip Kelly, uh, he is an architect. He is a departure. 
Uh, and yeah, he's not been in the college game for a while, but he has a resume. He made it to a national championship game. And I don't think anybody's looking forward to seeing him uh, in the Pac-10, back in the Pac-10 if you're a Pac-10 coach, Pac-12 coach. Chris Peterson from Washington, um, that, it seems high to me at number four. Seems high to me. Or, or, yeah. Well, defend that one a little bit. Well, you look at his Power 5 head coaching uh, resume, uh, he's only at a six because he's only been – I think this is his fourth or fifth year. I think it's his fifth year yep. at Washington. Yeah. But he scores very high on everything else. I mean, his record at, at Boise State was, you know, insanity. Uh, I mean, it was a video game, the numbers that he put up there. I think the trajectory he is on is very high mm-hmm. uh, in the conference he's in and the program that he's built. So yeah, look at look at looking at your five now. That I look at your five across and don't just look at the total number. Right. I I actually can't argue with it. I think all those numbers are really fair. So what that makes me think is everybody, everybody else that you out of the top three is going to have one glaring weakness out of these five yes. criteria. So then yes. it would then it would just come down again to what I mentioned at the top of this is my wondering if your weighting of current trajectory having the same 1 through 10 scale as Power 5 resume has, that might be the one beef I have, and maybe Chris Peterson would be my example of it. But based on how you have these numbers, I don't have a problem with the rankings that you've given everyone. I mean, to put this into context, Chris Peterson or Chip Kelly at number 5, is seven points behind Nick Saban at number one. All right, yeah, that's a big on a thirty-one point scale. That's huge. And 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 actually, that's the same amount of difference in point totals between the coaches from twenty-three through twenty-seven are, um, yeah, seven points behind Chip Kelly. Hmm. So that give, that gives you an idea of how. Um, how close yeah. this is a in a man. lot of these tiers. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. So no, I, I like it. Um, you and know, that's why I needed that. And this is John, this is why I needed to weigh the trajectory number so highly, because that tells me what kind of personnel you are able to deploy with your resume. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the old debate, is it the Jimmy, Jimmy's and the Joe's or the X's and the O's? The answer is yes. You know I mean? The answer is Yes. I mean, if a coach has the better Jimmys and Joes and the better X's and O's, is he going to win, John? Probably should. Yeah. And then after that, you know, the coach with the better X's and O's, there's a a certain level of Jimmys and Joes advantage that he can't overcome. And then there's a coach with the Jimmys and Joes advantage. There's a certain X's and O's disadvantage that he can't overcome. Okay. That's why why I needed to weigh that so heavily because it gave me an idea of where your current – talent level and recruiting ability was at in terms of helping me to rank where you where you belong right now. No one would argue that Bill Snyder is a better football coach in terms of X's and O's than Gary Patterson or Jimbo Fisher or Mark Antonio. No one would argue that. No one would argue that. But if they're on the if they're all if they're both on the field together with the current trajectory those guys are at and the talent base those guys have which coach are you picking to win that game on a mm-hmm. neutral field? Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I haven't delved into your um, recruiting and, and your talent rankings that we're going to talk about in the Bigger Ten podcast. So here, here's my thought. I see Brian Kelly sitting at 13. And I think that, in my mind, Notre Dame still recruits at a very high level. Maybe they don't. But should Brian Kelly be ranked higher on this list? Is this where he's got the Jimmys and Joes? But the X's and O's haven't come through. Yeah, I mean, I think with the problem with Brian Kelly is he scores very high on everything other than his Power Five coaching resume. At Notre Dame, he's been good, but um, he hasn't had back-to-back double-digit win seasons yet. In fact, Notre Dame hasn't had back-to-back double-digit regular seasons since Lou Holtz was the coach. That's insane. That is insane. I think it was ninety two, ninety three, was the last time they had back to back. It would be interesting. Double digit yeah. regular season. It'd be interesting to go through the Power Five t- uh, programs since then, 
and see how many of them have done that since then. I bet it's over 66, 70% in Notre Dame, yeah. not one of them. I mean, he's going into, I think, is his eighth or ninth year. Typically, Notre Dame coaches don't last more than this, even the great ones, you know, don't last more than nine or ten years. He went to one national championship game. He's been to one other New Year's Six Bowl. And other than that, there's a lot of eight and nine win seasons in there. Hmm. Kirk Ferentz, you know? yeah, Kirk Ferentz from Iowa. You have him at twenty-one, ranking eighth out of ten in Power Five experience, two out of ten in non-Power Five, um, which you know basically we're talking about Maine and then the NFL. Uh, then four out of ten on current coaching trajectory, two out of three on big game, and zero out of ten on Hall of Fame bonus because. At the present time, I don't believe his winning percentage qualifies him for the Hall of Fame bonus. If it did, if he had the three or four more wins uh, versus those wins being losses, he would be yep. above the 60% threshold, and he would probably rank around, um, you know, he'd probably be tied with Kirby Smart at 14. Yeah, everything else, that's the only thing missing. Ferentz needs one more 2015. Yeah, like a 10-2. and two. Yeah, he needs one more 2009, one more season like that, and I think everything else on his resume and given the school he's accomplished at, he's accomplished it at, I think he's in the Hall of Fame. Plus, he's he's well regarded by the by the the, the, the decision makers in college. Oh, yeah. The, they have the, a high the, regard yeah. for him. The only thing that would keep him out of the Hall of Fame right now is if he doesn't get to the 60% threshold. That's Agreed. pretty much it, period. I agree. I no, agree. This, this is a really cool list, Steve. This is a lot of work, but it's it's not easy, and there'll be a lot of quibbling. Um, and if you'll all get a chance to see this as we get into the summer here and Steve releases his entire preview. But um, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. Now, let's I, where I really struggled – is where to rank Kirby Smart, Lincoln Riley, Matt Campbell. I'd like to get your feedback on where they're because if I were if I were critiquing this list, what I that to me is the test of its integrity. Okay, well, yeah, well, let me go to Lincoln Riley. Okay, Scott Frost. What yeah. do I rank? Well, Frost is different though. Because he's never coached in the Power Five. Right, he hasn't okay, had a year so, yet. So Lincoln Riley, yeah. you have a 3 out of 10 on Power Five experience. I think that's fair. Uh, you have 3 out of 10, uh, 3 out of 5, rather, on non-Power Five head coaching experience. You have, find him again, 8 out of 10 on trajectory. Not bad. He had one great year, and it was a very good year. Made it to the Final Four. One out of ten on big game, and then zero. I mean, I I think that that's very fair. Matt, very fair. You have him at twenty third on your list. I think that's an indictment of a lot of people below him, and I think it's a much better ranking than what I've seen of some people that put these rankings out this year that have him in the top ten or the top fifteen. And I think that's. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's stupid. I think it's people that are trying to preserve their relationship with him, so that when they call him on the phone, he'll answer their call. As silly as that sounds, but we know the world we live in. You've got yep. James, you've got James Franklin at twenty, one spot ahead of Kirk Ferentz, and he doesn't have the longevity that Kirk has. And you have him one point lower than Kirk on Power 5 experience. But you look at what he did at Vanderbilt, that's hard dang work. So I don't have a problem with a 7 out of a 10. I think that's very objective, very fair. Um, Non-Power 5, you have him at a 2. Current coaching trajectory, you have him at a 7. Some might say that might be a a tick too low. Um, Big game, you have him at a 0. And Hall of Fame, you have him at a 0. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. Uh, what do you think of what do you think of how he graded Kirby Smart? Essentially, he has the same grade as Lincoln Riley, but um, he has one more point. I, he did he went further last year yeah. than Lincoln Riley did. Yeah, and I think his trajectory, the competition he's up against in the SEC, they're so much more talented than every other team in that division, and so his trajectory I think is a little bit higher 
and that's why he's at 14 and, and Lincoln Riley's yeah. at 23. I don't have a problem with it. And do I think Kirk Ferentz is a better coach than Kirby Smart or have a better resume, et cetera? Yeah. But when you break down all of these five factors that you have and you look at Kirby Smart making it to the national champ, he, he's not the only coach who's had talent at Georgia. But is he only, he's the only one in a really, really, really long time. Yeah, I mean, had, their former coach I have in the top ten. Mark Richt is in the top ten. Yeah, he's number nine. Yeah, that had Georgia, uh, you know, a play away, amazing play away from winning a national championship. So, no, this is really, really solid. What no. do you think about Matt Campbell? Tell me, give me your breakdown of how I broke down Mike. Matt All right, you've got Campbell three out of ten on um, Power Five. Uh, what did they win six or seven games last year? They won seven last year. I mean, so you? No, had, I think did they win eight? Did they go seven and five and then win the bowl game? You're gonna. I mean, you think I know that? You keep talking. I'm gonna double check. That, <laughs> but I thought they went eight and five. That's the first time I've ever heard you say you keep talking um, <laughs> to me. So then you have him at three out of five on his non-power five resume. Had he did a great job at Toledo. Seven out of ten on the trajectory, and yeah. Get, whether it was seven wins or eight wins last year at Iowa State, yeah, they were they went eight and five. Yeah, I've, I don't have a problem with seven out of ten. Some people might say it should be lower, but I don't have a problem with that. Well, there, it's there, it's if you if you're only looking at what you can do at Iowa State, you could argue it could be it should be lower. I'm thinking in the next four years, though, either this guy's going to be, um, he's going to. Uh, Either in the next four years, either this guy is going to make it's going to be Iowa State's turn to be Baylor, TCU, K State. You know what I'm saying? That that traditional bottom feeder small school in the Big 12 that gets a chance to make a run. Okay, in the next four years, it's either going to be Iowa State's turn to be that school, or he is going to be at an at a, at a top level Power Five job. One way or the other, his uh, yeah. trajectory is going up. It's, to me, his trajectory at 7 out of 10 is perfectly fine because it was at Iowa State. Historically, one of the most the toughest, one of the toughest places to win in the sport. And I, I'm, I'm sure there's some Iowa fans that are rolling their eyes right now hearing you say that, you know, will it be Iowa State's turn to be Baylor, TCU, Kansas State, etc. I, I get what you're saying. Totally get what you're saying. I would offer this, and this is probably a different topic altogether. I think it's going to be a lot harder to do that at Iowa State than the programs that you mentioned because Iowa State has different academic standards than than Kansas State, so they're not going to be able to take advantage of things that Kansas State took advantage of several years ago in the JUCO ranks that are close right there at Kansas. Uh, And they don't have the talent pool to pull from that a TCU does in the uh, Dallas metro area. And clearly, you know, being a private school uh, in, in Waco, I guess, has some recruiting advantages that don't necessarily want to call those advantages now in hindsight. So I, I think it'll actually be a little more challenging, but I get what you're saying for sure. No, I, I, I mean, you have Jeff Brom at 28, one spot ahead of Campbell. I think these are really good. I think somebody that publishes a magazine should see these. Well, I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Then you'd, yeah, you'd give me an honest opinion. Yeah, I do. I tell you, if I didn't like them, I mean, I told you right at the bat what I thought I saw as a conflict. But after we walked through it, looking not just at the totals but at the internals, the internals actually make sense to me. And there I, was only one coach that that tempted me to reverse engineer something because I didn't like where it was ranked. Can you guess who it was? Well, everyone in the audience is screaming Jim Harbaugh, but I oh, think that's no, probably that's too easy. Um, yeah, Mike it. Gundy? No, come on. You you know my man crush. Who is it? Well, I mean, Bill Snyder's one of your man crushes, but... Um, yes. Okay. Pat Fitzgerald, man. Oh, Pat Fitzgerald. I can't keep up with your man crushes anymore. Bill Snyder is, is, is a man crush. Pat Fitzgerald is one. I really tried to come up with a system that did not have him at number 31. And I just, I just, you know. That's, listen, that would be like you this year. If, if you would have done that on top of filling out two brackets this year. Oh, come on, we, man. We, we, we would have had some words. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But you, you stayed true to your thing. Listen. It, it, emotion cannot get involved when you're trying to do a statistical analysis. 
and you did all the work and laid these you laid these categories out and the numbers fall where they fall is what it is so sorry all right so now that now that this is decided your thoughts on solo all right that i was i was wondering how we were going to segue and let me just say right now if you have not seen the han solo movie that came out late night may 24th we record this on the 27th i think the 27th of may the sunday eve before memorial day if you've not seen it and you intend to see it then you might want to just stop listening to this podcast right now because it's going to be full of spoilers there's not a ton of spoilers, but we're going to talk about the movie. So if you continue to listen beyond this 10-second pause, it is your fault. But come back and check it out after you've seen the movie. Okay, let's talk about Solo. I texted you. at My, my daughter and I went and saw it on Friday night. Saw a late show. And... And I think this has a lot to do with my reaction to it. Grace and I had zero expectations. Matter of fact, even as much as three weeks ago, Grace, who you might not be surprised to learn is like me, as she will take a stand on seemingly meaningless and trivial things the way that you always enjoy when I do. She had no interest in seeing Solo. She felt it was an absolute betrayal to Harrison Ford and the character as well. And she had no desire to see it. I wasn't that militant, but I really wasn't all that interested in seeing it either. And then on Thursday afternoon, I get a text from her. Hey, uh, Dad, are we going to go see Solo opening night? And I'm like, oh, you have a change of heart? And she's like, well, I just figured that, you know, we won't always have a chance to go to see Star Wars, you know, opening nights together. So we should do it. And I said, that's the right answer. So we did it. And when it was over, we both looked at each other as we were walking out and we kind of both broke out laughing. We're like, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. That's the word that comes to my mind when this, when I think about this movie, was it the best written movie ever? No. Was it the best Star Wars movie? Not even close. Did it feel like any of the saga movies? Not really. But it was. It took place in the Star Wars universe. And it was just a ton of fun. I, I tweeted out, it's like a popcorn movie. You didn't have to do a lot of thinking. They threw a few homages into geeks like Grace and I, who have spent so much time watching the Clone Wars animated series, which is top shelf phenomenal, by the way. And if you haven't seen it and you're a Star Wars fan, you're not really a Star Wars fan until you've seen it. Uh, and the Rebels animated, they, they had some homages there. The big what the heck at the end of the movie that we'll talk about here in a bit. If 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 you are familiar with the Clone Wars and Rebels animated series, then you understood how that person's inclusion uh, mall fit, and you weren't thinking back to Phantom Menace. Wait a second, the dude was cutting a half down a well. You know how he came back and was reintroduced. So I ha- I had a blast, Steve. We we really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A is not around and Burger King offers those, uh, uh, 10 uh, chicken nuggets for a dollar 49. You run through the BK. Yeah, actually they do. So you, you run through the BK drive through and you're like, you know, I, I'd pay the nine fifty for a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich because it's that much better. But if I don't have that option, then. A dollar forty-nine for ten of these uh, previously frozen nuggets at Burger King. Better than nothing, you know. So, um, you scarf those down. You're not hungry anymore. Like an hour and a half later, you totally forgot you ate them, and you know it's nothing that you necessarily put in your scrapbook, or you're not like you know tweeting out, "Boy, the best chicken nuggets ever at Burger King." I, I that's kind of what I thought this movie was. Um, there wasn't anything else out. There wasn't a real Star Wars movie out. I've already seen Infinity War three times, so it was there. You know, rated Vendo Land. I'm not hungry anymore. But, you know, it's, it was kind of a nothing burger to me. I, I had some nice action scenes. I, I, you know, I don't know that we, other than the cameo of Darth Maul, which I didn't understand 
and you know I'm the one that recommended Rebels and and Clone Wars to you. Mm-hmm. So I, I I I mean I I understand you know the character and his arc. I have no idea of all the 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 cameos to put in this movie. Why they they used him? I have an idea. And and then they use him in a way where we didn't see anything badass at all like we saw from Vader in Rogue One. I don't think the movie adds anything to the canon whatsoever uh, other than Darth Maul's cameo. If you're a somewhat knowledgeable Star Wars fan and you, you know what a Kessel Run is and you know about the life debt between Chewie and Han and you know that uh, you know Han swindled Lando and that's Sabacc out of Millennium Falcon. That's the movie. And then the rest of this is just, you know, the rest of the characters and subplots are just there to bring to life this backstory that we've heard alluded to before. So, you know, it, it's a it's a summer popcorn movie, nothing burger. It you know, you'll have fun at times while it's while you're watching it. And when it's over, it will be largely forgettable. That, that was See, kind of my but, but a lot of the things that you just brought up and are poo-pooing a little bit. If you're, a, I mean, to me, if you're a hardcore Star Wars fan, <laughs> it, it was fun to visualize what the Kessel Run was. We, we, we knew that there were spice mines on Kessel from other references throughout the course of the movies. But going through the maelstrom. And that scene and, and how the Millennium Falcon goes from being this sleek, closed-nosed front ship to having the front open because they had to jettison out the escape hatch and it had to go through some rough gravity right, instances. Now, here's, a, here's a major mistake the movie, the filmmakers made. Major mistake, in my view, is instead of showing us Han when he was with the Empire as an infantryman, and I understand he was a pilot. They, they basically demoted him for thinking for himself. We should have seen that. We should have sure, seen that. Sure. We because it, it's weird. It's like when Ray just picks. It's like when Ray picks up a lightsaber at the end of the Force Awakens for the first time in her life, and just boot stomps a Sith Lord with it. And you're like, why? Why? Well, he'd, he'd been shot. Okay. He'd been wounded. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, come on, man. And, and, and we're taking the whole, uh, you know, this is where, and this is where the internet's losing its, even the internet now is like Star Wars is going too far with the social justice warrior stuff. When Luke, when Luke's been training as a Jedi and he gets his ass handed to him when he faces Vader, Ray picks up a lightsaber for the first time in her life and boot and curb stomps a Sith Lord. Come on, man. Well, I thought, I felt the same way when I watched Han jump in the cockpit of the Falcon for the first time ever. And start flying this thing like it was the freaking trench run at the Death Star. You know, you got you 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 learned no appreciation for his abilities, none. And and I just thought, and you can tell, it reminded me a lot of Justice League. Two different movie makers um, trying to put their vision of a movie together, and so it's disjointed. And Justice League has some really cool scenes too. The story is very anemic. Because the studio didn't like what Zack Snyder was going to do. And so they cut him loose when his daughter tragically committed suicide. And they use that as an excuse to cut him off the film. And you bring a guy with a totally different vibe and Joss Whedon in. And you're watching this at times. You're like, I don't understand the point of this. I don't understand the point of that. And I kind of got that feeling here where he had the the guys who do the Lego Batman movies. Or, or the Lego movies. Miller and, and Lord. Yeah, they got run halfway through the movie, and Ron Howard comes in, and it looks great. But uh, I just kind of felt this was the first time. Not There's been bad Star Wars movies. Episode one is a bad movie. It's also a bad movie with, like, one badass scene. It's the, this is the all Star Wars movies are made to make money. Same reason every movie's made. This is the first time I ever felt like I was watching a Mick movie, if you know what I'm trying to say. The first time I've, I've ever felt like I was watching a movie purely for the cash grab, purely for it. Well, I, that's, I, not, that, that's not to say I didn't enjoy parts of it. I enjoyed parts of it immensely. Um, I also just walked away thinking a lot of this was unnecessary. Yeah, I, I think that you know they paid four billion dollars for the franchise. The, the the set of movies prior to Solo had generated about four billion dollars in box office receipts. 
And so we know they're in the black because of all the merchandising that they've sold. Right. So right. now I think that this, maybe this movie serves as a bit of a reality check for them. Because the only criticism I really have is there's too much Star Wars. And from someone who absolutely loves it, it's like, you know, to me, I'm going to watch every one that comes out just because I'm going to. Um, and, but I wouldn't enjoy Christmas as much if it was three, if it was th- every three months. Yeah. Why did this one come out in May? Are they trying to get back on the traditional May release? Yeah, I do. I, I, I do. Th- I do think that the last movie is going to have a May release, especially since they had to make the change to JJ there at the end for more time. I, I think that's what it is. But, you know, back to some of the nuances. Um, I, I enjoyed the Kessel run. I also, um, I also enjoy, you know, th- there were a number of different homages. So you, you said that Han swindled Lando out of the Millennium Falcon. Han only swindled, he out-swindled Lando. Mm-hmm. Lando had the card up his sleeve. Han saw it and stole it. And then later in the, at the end of the game when it was an all-in moment and Lando knew that he had the card up his sleeve to win, Han had already actually already stole it. So when Han won there at the end, won the Millennium Falcon, you remember what he said twice? He's like, won it fair and square, fair and square. And what mm-hmm. does he say when he sees Lando in Cloud City in, in Empire Strikes Back? He says he won it fair and square. So there's that little connection. What about at the end when, when Han shot Woody? When Woody's finger was just inching on the trigger, and the next thing you know, Woody's laying on the ground because Han blasted him before Woody pulled the gun out of his holster. Yeah. Han shot, shot first. first right. Han yeah. shot first. All these little things that I thought were just really, really cool for geeks like me that pay attention. And with regards to Maul, I think what they did is they introduced that maybe, yes, it did seem ham fisted. It's clearly set up for a trailer. Or, or a sequel, rather. Um, the actor who plays Han Solo has signed on for a three-movie deal. Now, who knows, depending on how this performs at the box office, if that happens or not. Uh, Kira, who was Han's love interest in this, she's certainly been indoctrinated by the Crimson Dawn, which they could have done better than something like Red Dawn. Come on. But... Um, and and Darth Maul, or just Maul now, that's what his name in the credits was Maul. He's no longer Darth. Um, Maul has her under some mind control, and she double-crossed and triple-crossed. You don't know who's good, you know who's bad, you don't know what degrees of it. And I also think this movie did a great job of setting up the, the mentality of the Han Solo that we meet in the Mos Eisley Cantina, the guy that's in it just for himself, the guy that trusts nobody but a big hairy Wookiee, the guy that, you know, you know, at the end of, near the end of um, A New Hope, Princess Leia says, if money's all you want, then that's what you'll receive. You know, I'm just in it for the, the money, sister. Dude, because he's been burnt. He, was, he used to be a pretty decent guy, or at least a gray guy, but he had a good heart. And Han Solo, it turns out, in my opinion, helped make the Kessel Run, which winds up being seed money for the start of the entire rebellion. There's a lot of cool things in there, and you... It sounds cooler with you listing it than it does the way they execute it. I'll put it that way. Okay. Um... But now I think the best line in the film, and, and you, you see half of it in the trailer, but it's when Kira looks at him and says, "I may be the only w- person who knows what you are." Right. And you, we see her say that in the trailer. We see the other half of that conversation in the movie, and and he says, "Yeah, what?" And she says, "You're the good guy." Mm-hmm. And now I thought that was really well done because it foreshadows. That that we learn that in the future. That's true. That is really who he is at heart. Um, uh, so you know, there's some nice touches in there. I, I don't want to discourage people from seeing it. You'll enjoy it, okay? And if you're wondering about your kids, there's you know, it's basically a typical Star Wars movie. They say damn and ass a few times, and there's Star Wars level violence. I I, I don't know what they, I frankly thought the guy played Lando or played Han was better than I thought he was going to be. Although it's still an impossible task. I was not as impressed with Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian as I thought I would be. Uh, I thought he couldn't hold Billy D. Williams' jock strap. 
I don't know what they were alluding to there. Yeah. With, and, and, you know, I would have never picked up on it at all, except the filmmakers said beforehand that Lando is a pansexual, which I had to look that up. I didn't know what it meant. Apparently it means you are sexually attracted to literally everything. Okay? Everything. Like every speed, everything. So I, 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 it's so clumsy and contrived that you would not realize it if they weren't trying to earn their uh, social justice. See, I didn't know that. I, I, I didn't know that. And then watching it, I'm like, are they trying to like insinuate that the dude yeah, plays it's really both bad. sides? It's, it's really, it's it, not both sides, every side, every yeah, single like the, side. Like the droid too. Yes. Yeah. When she says, yeah, never mind. I don't even want to think about that. Well, and, and I would not have picked up on it at all, except they made a point before the movie came out of saying, yeah, we portrayed him this way. And, and so, you know, you're like, whatever, man. I mean, it's just completely and totally contrived. There's still some really cool scenes. It's cool watching him take over the Falcon. Um, you know, I just would urge people, temper your expectations. This is not a movie you're probably going to think you need to see two or three times. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, like when Chewie rips both arms off the guy, they reference that in the original trilogy. Yeah. Yep. I mean, all those little, to me, I those are all the little Easter eggs that I instantly, that Grace and I both picked up on and we looked at each other and smiled. And, I, you know, she and I thoroughly enjoyed it together because we are both geek level 10. And I think if you're geek level 10, and especially if you're watching it with a family member and your kid for that matter, maybe that's why I enjoyed, enjoyed it so much more because, you know, she is straight geek level like I am. And so, you know, if they do make a sequel, I think it could stand to be pretty, pretty decent because of Maul's re-inclusion. And I think, Steve, the reason why they, they chose Maul for that possibility is because of all I think I think of any characters, there's two, two characters that people who have invested a lot of time in the Star Wars franchise wish we could have gotten more of. Yeah, it's Darth Maul. And Qui Gon Jinn, and, and and this is a chance to maybe give people some Darth Maul, and maybe this is a chance to you know introduce you know the Night Sisters, you know just mm-hmm. all those things from from the Clone Wars, but this is also the first time, and Disney's ownership of this, this is the first time that we've wedded some of the animated with the yeah. with the uh, cinematic. Now the the main ship in Rebels is seen in um, Rogue One. In You're Rogue right. One, we see that, and, and, yeah. and, and they actually say over the intercom, uh, they ask for her name, her name, Hera, yeah. whatever her name is. Yep, Hera. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm just, I think it's the audience. Rogue One is one of the best Star Wars movies. Oh. This movie's not. This movie's not even close to that. Agreed. Agreed. It, it was a fun time, though. We had a good time, and. Uh, also, I'll probably see it again. I got to take Mary. I was going to take her today, but she didn't feel good. So, at any rate, okay. Well, that'll do it for this installment of the HN podcast. For Steve, I'm John. We'll talk to you soon.